In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of the Second Corinthians, um, where St. Paul is speaking a lot about the spiritual ministry. Uh, he's speaking about his personal sacrifice that he's making for the sake of the gospel. He's speaking about his authenticity uh, as... Let me get the microphone. He's speaking about his authenticity as uh, an apostle. And the reason being that he wants the Corinthians to believe uh, in his message um, because he is an authentic apostle and that this message is coming directly from the Lord Christ. And this is very important because there are a lot of other false teachers and false prophets who are teaching against St. Paul and are jealous of St. Paul. And so the more that the people trust in him uh, personally as an authentic apostle, the more they will trust in his message and his message is the message of salvation. So out of his great love for the Corinthians, he is, we hear him often like defending himself, right? And so his defense of himself is not because, you know, his feelings are hurt that people are against him or that people do not um, recognize his uh, apostleship, but it is because he wants them to have salvation. And in order for them to have salvation, they have to accept the message that he is preaching. So we will continue um, in chapter six. Um, so it says, we then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Okay? So St. Paul recognizes that, that his work and this work of salvation is a cooperation between God and man. And this is very important. Um, and we've, you know, we've mentioned this before about the idea of monergism, monergism being the, the philosophy or the idea that God is the only one who works in salvation and that it is completely the work of God and not in any way the work of man. And we reject this idea, right? He says we are workers together with him. God, of course, is the one who ultimately brings success in anything that we do, but God chooses not to do the role that we can do, right? This is why. Um, when, when Christ was saying that um, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few, meaning what? Like if there were more laborers, if there were more people willing to take up the mission, the calling of God, then that means the success will be more. And, and just, just it's a common sense. You can think of it like that. Like, you know, if you have a service in the church and the servants are, are diligent and the servants are well prepared and the servants are calling people to invite them to come to the service and so on, you can imagine that the service is going to be more successful than if we do none of those things and the servants are lazy and the servants don't call anyone and the servants are not prepared. You can imagine that there's going to be a stark difference between those two services. So very clearly, just in a common sense, there is a there's a greater impact, there's a greater benefit, there's a greater work that's done when human beings do their role. But even if we did everything that we could do within our power, and let's say the ministry is very successful, we don't attribute that success to us because ultimately it is the grace of God that is working in the hearts of the people that we are serving, that we are reaching out to, that brings conversion, right? That brings repentance, that brings, you know, and maybe all of us have experienced this in the past. We've experienced times where we come to church and we listen to the sermon and we listen to the, the readings and the liturgy and we listen to lessons and so on, and our hearts are just kind of unmoved and 
we feel kind of dry and not very active or not very kind of, um, you know, not, not very responsive, right? Maybe not really feeling convicted of anything. But there are other times where we go to the same church and we listen to the same speakers and oftentimes the exact same message. And yet somehow at those times we feel our hearts are, are like passionate and, and, and the words like pierce our hearts, right? What is the difference? Is the difference because somehow this specific speaker um, said something in just a certain way? Actually, when you think about it, for most people who are Orthodox, you know, a great percentage of the things that we hear, whether it be in the sermons or the readings or so on, are things that we already know, right? It's not about I need to, to learn more information and knowledge because it is that new knowledge and new information that is what is going to bring me salvation. Actually, it's probably not, you know, maybe for people who are new to the faith or children that are still learning, right? For someone who's, you know, been in the church for a, for a while and active in the church, even when we don't know all of the information, right? We don't necessarily know every story. We don't necessarily know, you know, every piece of history, right? Or every theological belief, but we know enough. You know, we know enough that if we were to live out what it is that we already know, then we would have salvation. If we live what we already know, you know, the reason that we try to gain more knowledge is not because more knowledge is going to bring salvation. The reason we try to know more is because we want to grow deeper in our faith, grow deeper in our intimate relationship with God, be more in love with God, experience God more richly, the more that we know him. It is not because somehow that knowledge was lacking in us, but it is to inspire us, to motivate us, to encourage us, to, 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 to allow our minds to meditate and contemplate on God more rather than the things on the world. So it is a very practical faith, right? It is a very practical faith, the work of God working in us. And of course, this ties very much into the idea of sin. Because when we are doing all those things and going to all those meetings and listening to all those sermons and so on, but we are living a life of sin without repentance, that sin is a block. That sin is a block that we, we, we hear all the same things, but that sin is a block. I don't, I don't benefit. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not filled. Just like in um, the parable of the sower, the same seed is landing on all these different grounds, but the grounds are different for different reasons, right? And so um, I can be, you know, something in me is preventing me from growing, is preventing me from, from, from advancing. Here, St. Paul, he's again emphasizing that he is a worker with God. He is working the work of God. Um, this also emphasizes, okay, like I said, the role of, of human beings. Um, His Holiness Pope Shnuda had this famous verse where he said, we are not saved by good works, but we also cannot be saved without them. Okay, meaning it is not our good works that are going to get us to heaven because no amount of good works is enough for salvation without the grace of God. But in order for me to respond to the grace of God, which is the human component of our response to God, then we, we have to make an effort toward doing the will of God, right? It's not just I hear the word of God and I'm completely kind of passive and I say, yes, I believe, but I do nothing. I don't, I don't actually put it into practice and to say that I have salvation. St. Paul, he had to labor extremely. He had to labor extensively in order to spread the word of God. Right. And if he hadn't done so, no one would have been converted. Like, why is it that we honor St. Paul so much? We honor him because of the extreme sacrifice that he made for spreading the word of God. 
and and look how successful God made it to be. If St. Paul had decided that he was simply going to, you know, like phone it in, like he's, he's just going to stay where he is in one place. He's not going to go visiting any churches. He's not going to go establish churches. He's going to be much more passive uh, than he was. Then we would rightly expect that there would be much less fruit to his ministry. You know, even though it is the same God, even though God still his will is for the salvation of the people, but it all relied on how much St. Paul was willing to work. So this same is true with us. And, and, you know, when we think of the time of fasting, right, how much does fasting benefit us? Well, the answer to that is how, how strict am I choosing to be? How much am I willing to sacrifice? Am I really wanting to make the fast a time of sacrifice for me to where I really am giving up something that I care about? And maybe all of the meals that I eat, I don't really like what I'm eating. And it's actually a little, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it doesn't taste as good as I would like. Like, am I feeling there is a sacrifice in the fast? Or am I always just trying to find alternates and ways around it and loopholes and so on? The more that we work, that is a true sacrifice, the more God can work in us. Okay. St. <clears throat> Paul himself, though, even as he is saying here that he is a worker with God, he is admitting that God is the one who is doing all of the real work. God is the one actually doing all of the real gain. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Okay, so God uses us as laborers in this harvest, right? This is the, the verse that I mentioned about the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Okay, um, so it's important for us to kind of be aware of this. Um, we need to be of one mind, right, in order to work with God. Right. I can't work with a someone when I have a different goal than them. I can't work with someone when I'm not on the same page or on the same team as them. So in order for me to be a successful servant of God, I have to be of one mind and united with God. Right. And united with the other believers. In first Peter chapter three, it says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender hearted, be courteous. Right. Having one mind with one another. I have one mind with the church. I have one mind with God. I have the same target and goal as God. And if I have the same goal and target as God and I'm working and he is with me on my team. Right. Then we are then I'm able to accomplish great things. But if my target and my goal is different than God's target and goal. OK, then actually I might be even hindering the work of salvation. Like I'm not, I'm not able to do what it is that God is calling me to do, right? Think of like example of, um, of Jonah, right? The prophet, that when God called him for a certain mission, Jonah's mind was completely the opposite. Like, I don't want these people to be saved. I'm not going to go to where you called me to go. And so he went in the complete opposite direction. And of course, while he was in that state, his, his ministry had no fruit. So if I come to the service and I'm coming not with the same belief as God has said, the same belief of the church, if I am coming with a different foreign belief, if I'm acting on my own behalf, if I'm acting for a different purpose, right, than the purpose that God has um, called me to do, right, then I might find a lot of frustration and obstacles um, in my service. <clears throat> for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
So this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. Okay, so St. Paul is quoting this prophecy. So what is this acceptable time that he's talking about? What is the acceptable time? Where he says, in the acceptable time, I've heard you. What is the day of salvation? The fullness of time when Christ came, right? This is a prophecy of the Messiah, right? So here Isaiah is prophesying about that there will be the time of salvation, the day of salvation that will come, right? And so St. Paul is saying this uh, prophecy of the acceptable time of the day of salvation is being fulfilled now, right? Because now this is the time of the Messiah. This is right after the Messiah uh, was crucified, after the Lord Christ was crucified. So salvation has now come to the world, right? This is the acceptable time. The Messiah has now come into the world, um, and, and now is the time to act. You know, sometimes we, we always put off things, and we say, tomorrow I will do this, and tomorrow I will do that, tomorrow I will change, tomorrow I will confess, tomorrow, tomorrow, right? Here he's saying the acceptable time is now. You can't put this off to tomorrow, right? We don't know if tomorrow is going to come. This is the acceptable time right now to take action. Okay, um, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. So St. Paul, he was a teacher, he was apostle, he carried with him this burden of always being in the public spotlight, and he was easily criticized and judged if he made any kind of mistake. And people were always blaming him. They're always blaming him and saying, uh, he is not practicing what he's preaching. Uh, he is not authentic. Uh, he was. He is very aggressive. Uh, he is not bringing the, the true message. And so he was always being blamed. And anyone who is like in the public spotlight, it'll be very easy for that person to always be criticized for anything that they do. A person maybe uh, raises their voice a little bit. The person is criticized. Why? Because they're always they're seen by everyone. You know, maybe someone who is a private person, right, can do all those things and nobody even notices. But a person who is like St. Paul, who is a public person, who is very well known, um, it's very easy for him to be a stumbling block to others, even when he is completely innocent. He spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about um, the, the idea of whether it is lawful to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, right? And in that chapter, he speaks about how eating meat sacrificed to idols in itself is not a sin. But if it causes my brother to stumble by me doing this, then not only will I not eat meat sacrificed to idols, but I will not eat meat altogether. Okay, that was kind of like the conclusion of that chapter. So here he's saying what that his mistakes, you know, are are so amplified, right? It would not just be a, a reflection on his personal character, but on the ministry, on God Himself. You know, when someone who is a non-Christian who knows that we are Christian. And we say a bad word or do something that we shouldn't have done. What is their response? The response is to say, all of Christianity are, is like this. All of Christianity are hypocrites. All of Christianity. Why? Just based on the actions of one person. You know, sometimes people will come to the church for the first time and they have in their mind that all Christians are supposed to be perfect. They're not supposed to do anything wrong. And when they come to the church, 
and they see that the church is filled with normal human beings that make mistakes and do wrong things and you know they get scandalized by it you know i had one person to talk to me and they said i i i I thought the church was supposed to be filled with like saints and people who like always did the right thing. I'm like, no, that's not right. Like, but that's the mindset, right? We judge the whole group based on the actions of one person, right? Whether that's right or wrong, but that's the reality. That's what people do. So we make a huge impact on other people based on our actions, even if you don't realize it. St. John Chrysostom, when he was speaking about priesthood in his book on the priesthood, he describes how important it is for the priest to be blameless, right? He says, the priest's soul must be purer than the rays of the sun, and the soul of the priest ought to blaze like a light illuminating the world. Why? Because everyone is looking at him. Everyone is seeing him, and if the priest makes a mistake or an error or loses his temper or something, then it can become like a scandal. The same thing with us, with like Sunday school servants, for instance, right? We here in the diocese, many of you might be aware of the contract that servants are supposed to sign when they become servants. And essentially the contract is saying that I will, I'm choosing to live a certain way and I will not do certain things in public. Why? Because if I do certain things in public, it could be a stumbling block to others, right? And this is what St. Paul is saying. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. In the end, why are we doing this? Not because we want to have a good reputation. That's not why. And that's not why St. Paul keeps defending himself. He's saying it is because we do not want the word of God to be blamed. We don't want the ministry to be blamed. We don't want people to say, look at that person who calls themselves holy and righteous. And they, have, they live by a certain like, uh, uh, like plan and way that they are choosing to live. And then look at the mistakes that they did. It doesn't mean that we are not sinners, and it doesn't mean that we will not fail. But certainly when we are in the public spotlight, we have to be very careful because what we do reflects on the word of God itself. Okay. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Like St. Paul is listing here all of the hardships that he has experienced, he and his fellow apostles, for the sake of the ministry. And he reveals that the true minister of God will experience hardship in their service, right? And he's saying these are the things that we should expect in service. This is why, like, sometimes when certain servants are having difficult times in the, in the service, um, and they come and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing these difficult things. I don't think I should be in the service. I want to quit. Uh, look at what St. Paul said to expect in the service. He said, you will have what? You need to have patience, right? Patience with why? Because you need to have patience with other people. Anyone who is serving in the capacity where you're dealing with other people, you have to have an immense patience, right? You have to be able to accept so much from others and especially the wrong things from others. Because that is our role. Our role is to teach people who don't know something. So we have to have patience so that they can grow and learn. And they're going to fail a lot. And we have to teach them. We have to have patience in the circumstances of our life. Right? Having faith that God is taking care of all of our circumstances. We have to have patience with ourselves. As we are struggling with our own sins. Or we are, we are struggling with our own weaknesses that we continue to have patience and not give up trying to fight the good fight, trying to 
uh, overcome our sins and grown virtues, right? There's so many things we should have patience in. Then he says what? In tribulations, harsh conditions and trials that make one want to give up. Service is categorized by these. See, the greatest services that were ever done by any servants of God were the ones who were in the midst of trial. If somebody, if, if, if everything is so easy and smooth, right, then it's almost happening automatically, right? That's not the case with, um, with the service. Often our service is categorized by difficult challenges that, again, they, they make us want to give up and we have to continue. In needs, not having the resources we need, food, water, shelter, enough manpower, enough, en enough servants, enough uh, energy, enough time. We don't have enough, right? There's so many things that we need to do or want to do and we just, we don't have enough, right? We are in need, you know? And we, we hear many stories about how certain people who are in need in the service and that God provided in an amazing, miraculous way for them because they, were, they didn't give up and they were continuing to do the service even despite the needs they had. In distresses, situations where we do not know what to do and we feel completely helpless, right? We are in distress. God help me, I don't know what to do. Stripes, punishments that are a direct result of the service that try to impede us from continuing in the service. You know, of course, we know many stories about the martyrs and the saints that were beaten for their faith. It's just an example, but uh, a more realistic example for us nowadays, maybe is not that, but there's other things that stop us. There's other painful things that happen to us in the service that we have to endure. Imprisonments, right? We know St. Paul was in prison several times. Tumults, riots and mobs, like St. Paul experienced those things often. Labors, working without rest, that he is tired and he wants to rest and he wants to sleep and yet he continues to work. Sleeplessness, when he is anxious, when he is tired and when he is exhausted, when he has all this work, he wants to sleep and he can't sleep. Fastings, right? That, that, that he is fasting, whether it be a voluntary fast or whether it be a fast because he doesn't have any food to eat, right? This is the life of St. Paul. Here he's speaking about all the kinds of uh, challenges that he met and why, he, again, he was such a great apostle because he was able to accomplish so much despite all of these things that he experienced all the time. On top of this, if you can imagine that when it comes time for, for St. Paul to have the thorn in his side, you know, the, 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 the physical ailment that he had, which we think is blindness. Um, he had this thorn in his side and he asked God, God, can you remove this from me? And God said, no, my strength is perfected in weakness. Isn't this enough? Like, isn't it enough for St. Paul to have to endure all of this, let alone on top of it, some physical ailment that is keeping him from ministry? that's keeping him even weaker than this. And yet, despite all these things, God says, no. He says, I want you to feel weak. I want you to feel, I want you to experience these things. Because only when you experience these things are you gonna be humble. And then when you accomplish all that you will accomplish, you will not fall into pride believing that all of this was done by your own hand because you will realize how weak you really are. And so when we experience all of these things, right? We shouldn't be feeling like somehow, God, why are you not allowing me to have success? Or why are you not making it easier for me? Maybe there's a reason why that God wants us to experience these things. Because in the end, when we are successful, we will attribute to him and not to ourselves. By purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, 
right? He's listing here the characteristics that, that the servant of God should have, right? Purity. He needs to be an example for other people to emulate in purity, in his desire for holiness, right? He, he, he needs to have a sincere desire to obey the commandment of God. Sometimes we make so many compromises when it comes to the commandment of God. We make so many compromises. We say, um, you know, like this certain command is impractical in the day in the 21st century that we live now. This certain thing is impractical. How am I going to live a pure life in the midst of all of this atmosphere that we have in the world, right? But no, St. Paul says we should live pure, right? By knowledge, understanding the faith, you know, understanding what we believe and why we believe it, being able to teach it, okay? By long-suffering, you know, long-suffering, this word, we now translate it in most cases to be patience, but what is patience? It's long-suffering. It's suffering long. It's suffering to bring people to salvation. This is exactly what St. Paul did. He subjected himself to suffering, all the suffering that we were just read about for the sake of the salvation of others. Right? This is the mark of uh, a good servant. Kindness, right? Showing kindness, this kindness of God to others, the love, the compassion of God by the Holy Spirit, with God working through him. Right? This is very important. Right? Like we were saying in the beginning, it is not because of his own power that he is able to do all of this. It is because God is working in him by the Holy Spirit and sincere love. He's doing it because of love. He's not doing it because he's afraid of punishment. He's not doing it out of duty. He is not doing it because he wants, he feels like it is his, his people expect it of him. Or that if he doesn't do it, people are going to not uh, respect him or he's going to lose his reputation. There are many reasons why we might be doing the right thing. Oftentimes we do the right thing, but not for the right reason. Here he's saying our motivation to serve one another should be sincere love that we really want the salvation of others and not for any other reason. And that our personal sacrifices that we make in the service are again, because we want, we have sincere love for one another for their salvation. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true. So he's saying what? By the word of truth, focusing on the truth, not telling others what they want to hear. We come as the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth comes and brings something different. It is not bringing just what is already in the earth. It is bringing something different, something to, to give flavor, to give purpose to our lives, right? Something that is, it is unnatural. It is unnatural. It is not of the world. It is above the world. It is a message that is coming above the world not of the world, not of the system of the world. It doesn't just naturally come up from the world. It comes from God. God gives this message of salvation, this message of how we should live, the message of his love for mankind, and we deliver that to the people, right? So it is the truth, and often that truth is, is not popular. I mean, definitely in our days, Christianity is not a popular message. By the power of God, God is the one who is working again through his power to convince, to rebuke, to exhort. God gives the Christian authority, right? This is why he says that we are the judges of the world. We will be the ones to judge, right? Not that we are actually going to be sitting on judges' seat judging everyone, right? 
The judgment is because we are, we have the mind of Christ. We, we are, the, are judging according to the word of God, right? The word of God is what judges, right? Us and them. We are living according to this word, okay? So we have the power of God to judge and say, this is good and this is bad, right? Not the people, but the actions. This is a, this is a right action and this is a wrong action through righteousness, right? Both in times of joy, which is on the right, and times of sorrow on the left, right? So we are, we are, we, we are serving in the midst of all kinds of circumstances, okay? By the armor of righteousness. Um, by honor and dishonor, meaning regardless if people treat us with honor or dishonor, we are continuing our ministry, okay? Even if people speak badly about us, evil report or good report, we're again continuing in our service. Um, being accused of being liars, right? As deceivers and yet true. Like we are the ones that are accused of being liars, telling the, the, the wrong thing, teaching the wrong thing. We are the ones that are the, the racists and the bigots and the, and the you know homophobes and every other label, right? We are the ones that are labeled to be this because of the message that we preach. And yet God is saying, but, but yet we are the ones that are right. We are the ones that have the true message. Even if all of the world rejects it, we are the ones with the true message. Exactly like St. Paul. St. Paul came with a message that wasn't always a popular one, right? And many people rejected him for his message. And yet he continued in his message, right? Unchanged. As unknown and yet well-known, right? We, are, we appear to be of no significance. We appear to be of little consequence. And yet we can have a great impact through the grace of God. Like look at the apostles, the fishermen, right? Who could have looked at these men and said they would have a great impact on society, that they would have a great impact on the whole world, right? They are, of, they are unknown. And yet they became well-known. They became well-known through the word of God, through the grace of God working in them. As dying and behold, we live. Right, even though we experience dangers and persecutions and always on the verge of death, right, as the apostles were, and yet they continue to live and they continue to prosper and they continue to gain and they're improving more and more and more, right? So, so their ministry is successful, right? Behold, we live, but even though each day they are like threatened by death and suffering, as chastened and yet not killed, meaning they are being attacked all the time they're they're being attacked and yet even though they are experiencing this chastening like when they um, when the sanhedrin beat all of the apostles and yet they walked out rejoicing that they could suffer with christ and continued about their ministry just as before right as sorrowful yet always rejoicing right the outward circumstances can cause great sorrow the outward circumstances can be painful but this rejoicing that that they had is an inward rejoicing, an inward rejoicing because of their salvation, because they are fulfilling the purpose of God, because they, they are joyful to suffer with Christ. The external ex circumstances that they are experiencing are not sufficient to take away their joy. As poor, yet making many rich. So maybe from a physical sense, they are poor. From a physical sense, they, they don't have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of money. And yet, simply the word of God that pierces the heart that they share with people can make them spiritually rich. And so, and they have the spiritual richness as having nothing and yet possessing all things. 
So they were rich in spirit, they were rich in power, they were rich in joy, but from the physical perspective, they might have looked poor, they might have looked insignificant, unknown, having nothing, and yet through the grace of God, they had all things, they were rich. <clears throat> o Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. So St. Paul is like pouring his heart out to his children, right? Pleading with them that they would accept his words of salvation. And he was like very zealous and passionate toward them about what it is that he was preaching. So he's saying what well, our heart is wide open. Like we are pouring our hearts out to you. This is a heartfelt desire for your salvation. Again, not because we are just doing our duty, not just because we are doing what we should do, right? But we are, we, we, we truly have a deep love and a deep like concern for you. And we want you to, to listen to the word of God, right? Um, in, in verse 13, it says what? Even though his heart is open to them, they did not return uh, the same affection toward him. He's, he's saying, just as our hearts are open to you, we want your hearts also to be open to us. We want you to have a love for us the same way that we have a love for you, right? Any servant wants to see that those people whom he serves love him, right? Again, not just because it makes him personally feel good, but when the children have a relationship with the shepherd, then they are open to the guidance of the shepherd because the, the shepherd is able to influence them. He's able to direct them. He's able to guide them. He's able to keep them from falling into, into pitfalls, right? That, that people usually fall into. Like parents, for instance. Parents have to deal with their children that as they go through different stages and phases in life, they make certain mistakes. And this is a common well-known thing. And parents understand it very well. But the children don't understand. When the children are growing up and they're in these certain phases of life, they don't realize that they are liable to fall into certain uh, errors and mistakes and rebellion, right, and sins. For them, it's just the first time they're experiencing it. But for parents, they see and they want to guide and direct their kids. If the kids love the parents and have a good relationship with the parents, then even if the kids are unhappy with the rules that their parents set, yet they will respect them and they will be much more likely to navigate through the pitfalls of adolescence successfully because their hearts are open to the parents. They love the parents. They want to please the parents. They, they respect the parents. They believe the parents have their best interests at heart. And this is the best way to have a relationship. Right? It is not just that the parents are ruling their kids with an iron hand, although sometimes that's necessary, but that the children are cooperating, they are, they are willing to listen, to submit, and so on. So if the, if the flock has an open heart to the shepherd, then they will be willing to be convinced, to learn, to submit to the, the guidance of the shepherd. And again, that's what St. Paul wants here. He wants them to submit to him because they are submitting to God through him. They are submitting to the word of God when they submit to him, when their hearts are open to him. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? 
Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What does he mean when he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Okay, it's against interfaith relationships, right? But what does it mean to be, what is the imagery here? What is a yoke? Good, so if you're going to plow land and you have like the plow and the plow is being pulled by cattle and you could have, let's say two cattle, okay? Two cattle, one right next to the other. And you have like, in order for them to stay together and to work together, you put this like wooden thing on top of them in order for them to essentially be united together so that they can't like move apart. That's called the yoke. So what then does it mean when it says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? What is being unequally yoked in that, in that image? What does that mean? Yeah, so let's say you had one cow, you know, one, one cattle was very, very strong. And you had another one that was very weak. So the one that's strong is going to be doing all the work. And the one that's weak can't even keep up with it, right? And so it's a, it's a, it's a mismatch. It's unbalanced. So here when St. Paul is, is preaching about relationships, right? And he's saying, who is it that we should have strong, intimate relationships with? Do not be unequally yoked, because as a Christian, we have a certain path and a direction of life. We have certain expectations of us. We have a certain goal. We have a certain purpose. We have a certain calling and so on. This is a path that we are walking. So if we are yoking ourselves with another person, right, and that person is doesn't have the same calling, doesn't have the same purpose, doesn't have the same direction, doesn't have the same target or goal, then it's like they are not going to be able to stay together. One person is going to want to go one direction. The other person is going to want to go the other direction, but they're physically tied together, and so they can't. This is why he's saying what? The person who is the unbeliever, right? When we have strong, close relationships with them, they can be a bad influence on us. They can keep us from growing the way that God wants us to grow. So that's why he says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, right? And what communion has light with darkness? So the people that I should be spending my time with should be people who have my same mindset, have my same uh, faith, my, the same desire, are seeking to live a life of holiness just as I'm seeking. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't have weaknesses and that we don't fall into sin. But what is my purpose? What is my goal? My target, right, is holiness, right? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is something that's wicked, right? Christ is, is, can have no communion with the wicked right? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Why do you think he's talking to them about idols here? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Who are the Corinthians? 
Like what, what did they, what, who were they before St. Paul preached to them? They were pagans, right? So someone who's a pagan is what? They do what? They worship idols. So the, the worship of idols was something that was very ingrained in uh, the society, the Corinthians, right? The Corinthians were Greeks, right? So think about all of the Greek mythology that we learn in school, right? They believed in all those gods. They had all those idols, all those temples, and all of that stuff. That was their religion. And, and as we know, religion is not just religion, but it's also culture, right? Especially in ancient times like that. Even today, Egypt, for instance. The, the idea of the culture of, of the Coptic church and the religion of the Coptic Orthodox church, they're very much intertwined, right? So here you have uh, a, a nation who was very culturally pagan and religiously pagan as well. So there's all these practices that they were used to doing, okay, that, that, that even though they don't believe except in the one God now, they don't believe in all these pagan gods, but they still have these cultural practices that are pagan, okay? So, so here he's emphasizing the idea that they need to put away everything in their old life that is against their new Christian uh, faith. Everything that is against the faith has to be removed, right? This is, um, this is something that anyone who comes to the church, for instance, at an older age and is seeking to be baptized, they have to contend with this. They have to say, okay, for me to be Orthodox, it, it, it's not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of information that I say, you know what, I now believe this information instead of this information. That's not what it means to be a convert to orthodoxy. To be orthodox, to be Christian, doesn't mean that I simply accept a new set of facts as being true compared to an old set of facts. It is a lifestyle. It is a change of myself. I'm committing to change my mind, to change my practices, my actions, my relationships, you know, my habits, everything, everything about me, more than any other kind of change that a person can make in their life to change to become a Christian is a complete transformation of that person to the point where, you know, when you're baptized, you die. Like, like you're dying in baptism. It's like, you, I'm saying that I'm, I'm accepting that my current person is going to die. That's how much I believe in the truth, you know, of, of the Christian faith. And I'm willing to accept to myself something very different. Those of us who were baptized in the Orthodox Church as children, maybe never sat with ourselves and had this realization. Because we were always, maybe we grew up a certain way. We were taught certain things from when we were young. And that's just how it was, right? Maybe we never had to actively make that one-time decision. But it is a decision that we still have to make every day, right? Because every day I'm, I'm, I have a choice of how I choose to live my life and I can choose to live this way or choose to live it this way, right? So here St. Paul is exhorting them, those who are now Christians. He's saying, leave behind your old life, right? Leave behind anything that can, um, that can influence you. Even the previous verse when he's speaking about do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Maybe you, you know, Corinthian Christian who has now converted to Christianity, maybe you have um, family members 
or friends or other people in your life that are close to you that do not share the faith. And those are the ones who are saying, why don't you come to the temple and we can sacrifice the idols today? You know, like that's the thing. That's what they do on Friday nights. You know? They go and sacrifice the idols. Go, like come with us. Like, like there is a force of attraction to the old life, right? So here's, here's, he's reminding them, you don't have that old life. You chose to give up that life when you accepted to be baptized. So do not go back. Do not go back to, you know, what, what you were before. You are called to a higher calling, okay? I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not that you just gave up something and that's it. Like, it's not just like I had something and I gave up that thing. And now I have like a vacuum. I have a vacuum and I feel lonely and I feel, um, you know, separated, right? God is saying, you are actually gaining something. You are gaining more than you are losing. You are gaining to be a child of God. You are gaining that God is now your father. You are gaining the body of Christ. You are gaining the church. You are gaining a purpose and a meaning to your life, right? So, when that person is dying, it is not just that they die. No, they die and are recreated new. They're recreated as a new person. So they have they have something new to benefit from, to benefit them. They have something new to enjoy. And this is something as Christians that we have to always remember. Okay, how do we enjoy the gifts that God has given me? How do I enjoy the gift of salvation that God has given me? Something that sadly maybe we often take for granted. We take God's gift of salvation for granted. We take God's mercy for granted. We take the church for granted. We take um, the calling that God has given me to serve for granted. We, we take so many things that God has given us for granted. But those are the unique things that God has given us as his children that the rest of the world is not enjoying, right? But we can enjoy them. Yes. Sure. Like. For instance, we take for granted the idea that um, when we sin, God forgives us. But sometimes we uh, we use this as a license to sin. You know, it's easy for me; I can sin, and in my mind, like, well, I know God is going to forgive me, so I don't I don't take it very seriously. You know, I don't. Or even after I fall into sin, yes, I'm going to go confess. But even as I'm confessing, I'm not really taking it seriously. I'm just kind of in my mind; it's just not. You know, I don't have really a, a pain. I don't really, I'm not really mourning. I don't really have a sadness in me that this is what I've done. I take it very lightly. That's an example maybe of taking something for granted. I remember when I was working, um, I was a manager and my boss was the owner of the company. And he had like some weird ideas. He was from California. So. <laughs> Sorry, went to California. Um, he was like this very rich guy and he he like he had his own plane and he had like like he was like this type of person you know and so he wanted to he wanted to send all of the um all of the managers to this uh, manager training but what is the manager training he wanted have any of you heard of um what's the guy's name uh robbins what's the guy's name um tony robbins have you ever heard of tony robbins tony robbins is like one of these like very high powered life coach for celebrities, okay? Like, like it costs $10,000 just for each person to go to this thing. 
And he's like very strange guy and he does a lot of strange things and he makes you stand up and down and dance and do like, oh, and walk on fires and coal and stuff like that. Like, like it's very unorthodox, weird like thing. So I totally like, at first I never heard of him. And so I was like, okay. And then I started researching about it. I felt very uncomfortable with the whole idea. And so I told him um, I wasn't gonna go. And like, he wasn't happy, but, but I went through this like one week period very stressed about the idea of having to go to this thing. And I ended up telling him I'm not going to go the day before I was supposed to go. I felt very uncomfortable. Like I felt like the whole thing was almost like, I mean, I don't want to say demonic, but in some sense, I felt like it was a little bit out there. So I didn't feel comfortable at all. I was very anxious. And then finally, the day that I told him that I'm not going to go, um, I had a lot more peace. And then I remember going to um, to church for um for, I can't remember if it was, it was for Vespers. I can't remember if it was during St. Mary's fast or something. And I had this feeling when I went to church, like this church is a blessing. We come to the church, we pray to God, there's peace and tranquility and surrounded by people that have the same faith as we have. And we're free to worship God the way that we want. And in my mind, I'm like, but out there in the world, you have these crazy people doing crazy things. And because I was feeling forced to do something that I didn't want to do. So it gave me like this renewed appreciation for something that we take for granted, which is that I can come to church and pray at any time. Maybe during this past year, especially at the beginning of 2020, when the churches were completely closed, you know, we had this sense of we were taking the church for granted. The fact that we could just come to church for any time. We didn't pray Holy Week, you know, in the church last year. Something, again, that we took for granted. No one ever imagined that there would be a year where you don't pray Holy Week or you don't pray the Feast of the Resurrection in the church. But that's what happened. So the fact even that we're able to come to church, that we have the freedom to pray to God is, is a blessing, you know, that oftentimes we don't even really think about. So there's, all, there's many, many things like gifts that God gives us, our families, our friends, um, the services that we, we serve God in, the same services that sometimes we feel are a burden on us, make us feel like stressed out those services are a blessing that god gives to us right that allow us to participate with him in a service so sometimes we don't we don't remember that right and so we don't we we, we take it for granted yeah <clears throat> so here he's continuing his exhortation to the corinthians about how is it they should be living now that they have become christians so he says therefore come out from among them among them is the the, 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 their, their old acquaintances, the other people that are non-Christians, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be your I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It's such a very like heartfelt. This is another thing we take for granted: the idea that we are the children of God. It took the blood of Christ for us to become the children of God. We were not the children of God before. Right. It is it, we became the children of God in baptism, which was only possible through the shedding of the blood of Christ. The idea that God said that I will be a father to you. This is something, you know, we we, we never had this before, before uh, in the Old Testament. Right. So he's, he's calling us for something. He's saying, because I have offered you this great thing, this great gift that I have made you to be my sons and daughters. Come out from among them. I am calling you out from among the world. 
I am saying, do not conform yourself to the world. Do not be like the world. Do not live like the world. Do not look like the world. Be separate from the world. You know, oftentimes we, we struggle to understand how is it that I can be separate from the world while I'm still living in the world? While I still have friends of people in the world, how is it that I can be separate from the world? What do you guys think? How can I live this, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord? So how, what does that look like? Because before this, you say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? So do not have close, intimate relationship with unbelievers. That's what he's saying. So how can, how can, how does that look like in practice? Setting boundaries is excellent, right? Setting boundaries. Like I, I can decide to let people in and I can decide to keep people out. I can decide to let people in in the sense that I, I, there are certain activities that I'm willing to do with people. And they're only certain people, right? There can be someone who is an unbeliever but respects my faith, right? There can be someone who's an unbeliever who's still a moral person who I can still associate with them and I don't feel any kind of temptation to do evil, right? But there are other kind of person who they are a constant temptation for me to do evil and are constantly calling me to do evil and are always like attracting me to evil. Right. So I have to decide, you know, if I have the choice in the matter, uh, a relationship that I can choose whether to have that relationship or not, I can choose not to have a relationship with a certain person. Or if it's someone like, let's say, a coworker or my boss or something where I have to deal with them, I can say, OK, well, I'm going to allow you a certain access to me in the sense that I will allow you to do certain things with me and not other things. And I can make it very clear that certain behavior is unacceptable to me which takes courage, you know? It takes courage to make your boss feel that certain actions are, 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 are inappropriate, that he shouldn't do or say certain things around me, right? That I refuse to do certain things, even though that makes, makes me different from all of the others. And maybe all the others are thinking about how they're gonna please the boss and so on so they can get promoted. And me, I'm gonna say, no, I'm not doing that, you know? It's, this is the kind of the, the test. This is the, the question when we ask ourselves, what do I, who, how do I see myself? It, it, it should not be the case that my goal and desire is to be like everyone. We are not like everyone. Year after year becomes more and more clear that we are not like everyone. It, it, it was the case for a long time that in America, even atheists and, and unbelievers had a very similar moral system to Christians because it was the case that the older generations of Christians taught their kids a moral system, which was very close to the Christian moral system, so that even when those people rejected Christianity later in their life, they still had what was ingrained in them, which was a basic sense of morality that is based on Christian values. But now the generations that we have they, they're, they're not like that anymore. The moral system of the world is completely against the Christian moral system. Completely. Like, the, there's the, like when was the last time in the world that we hear that it's good to respect others? It's good to have patience with others. It's good to forgive others. It's good to show kindness to others. 
Like those basic things that I learned, you know, as a child, most people do not learn this anymore. If you look on like in, in, in the general population or in the world, it's all about how can I destroy others? How can I call out the mistakes of others? How can I cancel others? How can I crush others and destroy others? Like that's the that's that's the world today. Right? I don't I don't see like the respect or the kindness or the forgiveness or the mercy or I don't see that. So the very basic foundational, like the golden rule, doesn't exist anymore. The golden rule used to be like something that was 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 not even a, you know maybe it was rooted in Christianity, but maybe people believed in it, even non-Christians did. But I don't see that the world operates according to this. I don't even see it that it is like a value to be to to be admired or a value like like that, that we, we are working toward. It's not. What people believe is good today is destroying others who believe differently than we do. That that is con considered good. So the moral system that is in the world is completely against the moral system of God. And we cannot blend in. And, and maybe, maybe we used to be able to. But today, how is it that we are going to blend in to a system like that? More and more, we have to have the courage to be able to stand up and say, this is what I believe. If you want to be a friend with me, if you want to have any kind of relationship with me, I just want you to know this is what I believe. Don't make me conform to what you believe. Why is it? Why is it the case that we are the ones who have to conform to what other people believe? I can tell you to, to conform to what I believe. If you want to have a close relationship with me, this is my expectation. This is how I choose to live. This is how I choose to talk. This is what I think. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, fine. We don't have to have a good relationship with everybody. Actually, we cannot. Now more than ever, we cannot have good relationships with everyone because we have to compromise too much in order to have those relationships and we can't just stay quiet stay quiet stay quiet pretend pretend like i'm just with like everybody else pretend i'll just kind of like go under the radar nobody's going to know nobody's going to see i'll just kind of stay silent and quiet no because at some point they're going to ask of us to go and to, to offer the idols in the pagan temples which is what he's talking about and in that moment when they ask us to go and offer those idols at the pagan temples, then we're going to be in a difficult situation. It's like, well, this whole time, I, I didn't differentiate myself at all. This whole time, I didn't make it clear that I am not a pagan. I didn't make it clear that I don't go to those temples. I didn't make it clear. And now that the time is upon me, it's like, now I'm going to say, oh, no, I don't do that. No, they need to know who I am from the beginning, from day one, who I am. And I need to be proud of who I am. I'm proud of this, right? I can be kind and I can be tolerant and I can be respecting other people for what they believe without accepting that I believe it, without, without saying that I believe it, right? I respect your, um, you know, your right to believe what you believe. Also respect my right to believe what I believe, right? Don't, don't make it so that I have to pretend to be like you in order to be acceptable. <clears throat> Any questions about chapter six? I think this is a good stopping point. Yes. Well, I mean, it's never too late to start, right? It's never too late to start. So if we didn't from the beginning, when we say develop new relationships, 
make it clear to the people what our values are, it's, it's not too late to start. And we can give explanations, you know, like let's say a person, uh, you know, I know a lot of like workplaces, for instance, it's the culture where like the coworkers, they will like go out and have drinks, you know, like together. And it is during those social times that, you know, you develop like the close relationships and, you know, people get ahead and stuff like that with networking and whatnot. And maybe uh, from the beginning, I never made it clear that this isn't my lifestyle, that I don't go to bars and I don't drink and I don't do this stuff. And I just kind of was going on with it. Okay. So now I'm getting ready to, I want to change that. I want to change that, that mindset. So what do I do? And there's different op op options, obviously, but like one thing I can do, I can say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that uh, I'm going to develop an alcohol addiction. Um, and so I decided to stop drinking. Put it into a context that they can understand. You know, put it into a context they can understand. Like, like make it to be, you know what, I'm seeking to better myself. I'm seeking to better myself and, and make it about myself. I have a weakness. I have a weakness. And for that reason, I choose to live a certain way. I think a lot of people understand that. You know, a lot of people can understand that, that there are certain destructive things and those destructive things I'm very sensitive to. And so I choose to avoid them completely. You know, like um, when you're fasting, for instance, you can say, you know, um, my church teaches that we should be fasting and um, I wasn't really doing it so much before, but I feel like I need to start. So um, I've decided to start fasting. So on certain days, I can't eat this and that. So even though maybe we were never fasting before and it wasn't something that anyone even paid attention to, I can start doing it and I can give a reason. And the reason is not judgmental or any way. I'm talking about myself, right? If people want to take it in a judgmental way, that's their problem, right? I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying this is how I choose to live. So um, even if it's uncomfortable a little bit, but oftentimes people respect self-control. They respect the person who is seeking to control themselves, even if they don't want to live that way. And even they might even like make fun of us or whatever. But, but deep down, they respect someone who chooses to control their appetites. Because controlling our appetites is difficult. Controlling ourselves from cursing, controlling ourselves from eating certain foods, controlling ourselves from lying, controlling ourselves from gossiping. Even if the world does not see these as values that they admire, but they admire the idea of someone able to control themselves because they can't do it, right? Like something that, that as a Christian that we are able to do that the rest of the world is unable to do just by the fact that you're unable to do it would make them to admire us. We are desiring to have self-control. We are desiring to live a certain way according to certain moral principles. That is something that, that people can understand, right? So as long as we are not trying to make others feel bad about who they are, we can be very open and honest. And actually this is like, when it comes to evangelism, this is a great way to evangelize. I don't have to go to a person and say, you should come to the Bible study with me. No, you should say, ah, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to a Bible study. That's it. Like, I'm talking about myself. I'm not telling you to come. If you want to come, you can come, but I'm not telling you to come. I'm not making you feel bad that you're not coming. You ask me what I'm doing, I'm telling you. Like, we don't have to always feel like we're hiding. 
you know, we go through that, that thought process as well, you know, that person's not a Christian and they don't understand what a Bible study is. And even if they did, they probably wouldn't want to go to one and they might look bad, at, you know, down at me for wanting to go to one. So I'm just going to say, oh, I'm busy. No, we should say, I'm going to a Bible study, you know, because that's what I'm doing. I'm choosing to spend my night like learning about God because God is important to me. That in itself says something. And a lot of times people will respect that, even if it's not clear that they that they are. But but we shouldn't we shouldn't shy away from taking a stand about who we are. And because otherwise, what's happening, sadly, is the world is consuming us. Like the world, the world is encroaching on the church. Look at the number of Coptic people who believe in all the stuff that's happening around us. Like all, all the all the things that are against God's commandments that are happening in our society today, more and more Coptic people are accepting those things. Why? It's clearly against God's commandment. So why? Because we are unable to stand. We are unable to stand for what we believe. When, when I have a close friend who comes to me and says, uh, oh, did you hear about this Equality Act that's in Congress? You know, we want this to pass. Well, what is my opinion about it? Do I have an opinion about it? You know, what should I say about it? I'm afraid to say, no, I don't think it should pass. I don't want it to pass. Why? Because I might lose this person as a friend. They might fight with me. They get like, angry with me, whatever. Okay, if you get angry with me, you get angry with me. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? We have to stand for who we are. That doesn't mean being rude. That doesn't mean like trying to, you know, go with the message of you know everyone is going to hell or anything like that that's not the message it should be a message of love and a message of kindness but also a message that you cannot intimidate me to believe something contrary to what god teaches because ultimately god is my moral authority it is not society it is not the scientific community it is not any other group god is my moral authority my definition of morality my definition of right and wrong comes from god it's not even from my own mind even if I don't understand it, do you think that the Jews in the Old Testament understood why they couldn't eat pigs or why they couldn't eat shellfish? They don't understand that. I mean, they said, okay, God commanded that we should not eat shellfish, so we should not eat shellfish. Period. God didn't even give an explanation, you know? So it is good that we understand, but it is not necessary that we understand. So, so, we should be comfortable in, 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 in what we believe, even if it is unpopular, even if other people don't believe it, even if we lose friendships because of it. And this is what St. Paul was making it very, very clear. He's speaking to people who used to be pagans, who, 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 who their families and their friends are still pagans. He's saying, don't be unequally yoked with them, even your own family, don't be unequally yoked. They are gonna bring you down, be separate, right? I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm calling you out of that society and I'm saying you are a separate society. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are a separate people. You are not Americans, you are not Mexicans, you're not Canadians, you're not, you are Christians. That is your ethnicity. That is your identity. It doesn't matter what nation you are or what the laws are in the nation. What matters is that you are my people and I am your God and God is the moral authority that defines for us the laws. It doesn't mean that we disobey the laws of the country, but those laws do not govern for us what is right and wrong.
Yes. I mean, I can't read the future. So the question is, oh, the question is, um, is it always going to be the case that everything continues to kind of devolve and get worse and worse in terms of people's obedience to God? Or is there going to be a time where there's like a revival, right? And people begin to follow God more. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I know that ultimately, before the second coming, it says that even the elect will be deceived, right? So before the second coming, the, 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 the prophecy is that even those in the church will be deceived. So, I mean, I can see that that's happening. That doesn't mean that this is the end. Maybe there will be a time of revival. I mean, there's throughout history, there's periods of revival. Maybe there will be a period of revival and the end is still going to happen much later. I don't know. Maybe God is going to bring some kind of <laughs> catastrophe on the world, which will make everyone turn to him and there will be a revival. I don't know. Like, I can't tell you the future, but I can say that ultimately what we know to happen is that people are going to be, is going to increase in their apostasy, increase in their wickedness, increase in their ungodliness until the second coming comes. And that sadly, those forces are going to affect the church and are going to make people's heart grow cold and turn away from God in larger and larger numbers. And we know that in, in Christianity as a whole, the, 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 the number of people that are leaving the church is, 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 is very, very high, right? Like if you've heard about the nuns, you know, so, so they, they do these surveys to ask people, like what religion they affiliate with. And one of the one of the choices is none of the above. Atheism is actually one of the options, okay? But there's an option of none of the above, and more and more people are increasing to select this none. So we call them the nuns. The nuns are increasing um, very high from year after year after year, people leaving the church. I mean, I'm not speaking specifically about the Coptic church. I'm just speaking generally, like the Christian church. Um, and just kind of, they don't affiliate with anything. And secularism, right? Um, the, everything happening around us, like people are, don't have any moral sense. Or again, they don't see God as the moral authority. So everyone is kind of comes up with their own value system. So we see the value system changing year after year after year, what is considered acceptable is changing. Um, and, and even those in the church are being deceived, right? And they're being deceived on, under the premise that what the government is actually advocating for is love. Because the definition of love has changed. What does it mean to love? Godly love, the love we talk about in the church is not the same love as people talk about in the world. So yes, I mean, I would say if things continue to go the way that they are, uh, without there being any kind of change, that is the direction that it's going. And it's up to us to be even more vigilant, to be even more prayerful, to be even more careful, just as St. Paul is saying, because this is something that can affect all of us. And, and you know, 
those of you, none of you here have kids, right? You will one day, God willing, have kids and you are going to want to protect your kids so much because they have to grow up in this world, in this world where there are four genders or 30 genders or however many genders there are, they will never know a time where there are only two genders. Like that, they, they, will, never, they will never have experienced a time where the world consider there to be two genders. So this is serious, you know, like this isn't something to take lightly. And, and we, as the church, have a responsibility to teach our kids the truth. And that means that we are going to be persecuted. This Equality Act we're talking about, if it passes, then the church won't even have the permission to teach that there are two genders. Can you imagine that? Private schools will, will no longer be able to teach that there are two genders. Christian private schools, if this passes. So we, we this matters to us. Like it, it matters, it's important. It's, 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 we, are, we are like in a, in a place different than any other time in American history when it comes to apostasy, right? This is really, really affecting the church very much. You know, um, we want the freedom to teach God's will, God's word. But even if we are not given the freedom, we will still do it. It's, it's, not, it's not like we're going to suddenly start teaching that there's four genders simply because the government says so, right? So we will be persecuted for that. We, we will be persecuted. And, and we should expect that. And that's what God said will happen at the end times, is that there will be persecution of the church. So, and God have mercy on us. Any other questions? Yes. So I feel like there's obviously there's many things. One thing is we have to we have to encourage people to see that the church is teaching the what is right because if if people in the church are deceived about what is outside um, and they consider that what is outside is like morally equal or better than what the church teaches, then those people are simply not going to come to the church for 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 kind of defining right and wrong and teaching right so that so on the one hand we have to we have to make the people aware that in the world there is indoctrination, there is deception, there is lies, there is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so you have to come to the church and stay attached to the church, number one. Because if, if the existing Christians are simply not coming to the church, not attending the sermons, the Bible studies, the liturgies, the Sunday school, the meetings and everything, if those people are simply are not coming, then they will never be exposed to them. Okay. Number two, the church has to be very aware of what is being taught in the world and how it's being taught so that we can counteract it. My personal opinion is that there needs to be the like Coptic schools um, in many places around everywhere <laughs> because the, the public schools have become so uh, liberal in their teaching that 
we cannot control what kids are learning. And, and once you get the kids at a young age believing something, it's very hard to undo it, you know? And if they have like 40 hours of education during a normal week, you can't undo that with one hour of Sunday school, right? So I think definitely like we need to take that more seriously. But the sad thing is that this Equality Act, you know, prevents private schools from teaching. <laughs> so so I, I don't know what will happen to that. But definitely we have to be in general, like we have to be more um, like aware and teaching these principles to kids from a young age to, to reinforce in them what is the truth and to, to make them realize that their identity, just as what I was saying today, their identity is different than the identity of their friends in school. Their identity is different. You are a different creation than what is there. Even though you look like human beings and they look like human beings, you are different than them. And for that reason, because you are different than them, you need to live by a certain code, by a certain law, by a certain moral system that's different from them. And you need to have a relationship with your creator, which is different than them, right? So like, we, we, we cannot continue to live as though we are just regular people in the world. In Egypt, even though there's obviously a stark difference between Christianity and Islam, but from the moral perspective, like in terms of like moral law, they're, they're very similar. Like most things are what one believes is right, the other believes is right and wrong and believes is wrong. So for in Egypt, it's like there is big religious differences, but there's not as, as many moral differences compared to here. Here, there's moral differences, there's religious differences, there's everything. So the society is not just a place where I should feel free that my kids can participate and everyone can just participate and do, no, I have to be super careful. Disney movies now, it's like, you can't just have your kids watch a Disney movie. You have to watch it ahead of time, pay attention to hidden messages and stuff like that, and then decide whether this movie is appropriate for my kids. Like the, there's much more burden on the parents to be careful than there was before. So education, training of parents, parents have to be watchful. After all, the, the family is, the kind of like the, the main uh, source of teaching. It's not, it's not even the church, it's the family. The church teaches the family and the parents teach the kids to a large extent because they're with them home all the time. So the parents have to be mindful, thoughtful, paying attention, understanding and so on in order to protect and preserve our identity because if we don't do that, then we've lost it. Any, any other comments or questions? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the freedom that we have been given. We thank you, O God, because you have made clear to us what is our purpose and what is our goal and, and the calling that you have called us to. We ask, O God, that you keep us from sin and temptation and the deception of the enemy, and that you keep us pure and holy and righteous in your sight. You teach us how to deal with those who are in the world while remaining separate from the world. We ask for your mercy upon us, O Lord, as a church, and we ask that you make the church to be a beacon of light so that those who are living in darkness, instead of attracting us to the darkness that we would instead attract them to the light we thank you O god for your word which teaches us the truth we pray O god that we will always have the freedom to read your word 
and that no one would take it away from us and that we would be able to live according to our faith, according to how you have called us to live. Be with those who are standing here before you, and be with all the church in every place, protect us and guide us and lead us to your heavenly kingdom. For the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all.